Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 259. And with that number, going to give a shout out to Seton Hall. They were ranked number 259 of 335 Division I women's NCAA soccer programs last fall. And Seton Hall is the alma mater of England women's national team legend Kelly Smith. Smith, of course, played in a few World Cups for the Lionesses and also played for the Philadelphia Charge back in the WSA days. And speaking of Philly, my first guest today, Mary McVeigh Connor, she played the final season of WSA with the Philadelphia Charge, uh, drafted out of Dartmouth, and she also used to coach college before she co-founded Soccer Without Borders. So we talked about that journey. And then I also spoke with Jamaican national teamer Ashley Shim about Uh, the incredible ride that she and the team have been on over the last 12 months and their current situation with the Jamaican Federation. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Mary McVeigh Connor, the executive director and co-founder of Soccer Without Borders. But as my listeners know how much of a old school Woso geek I am. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to Mary was because, Mary, you played in the WSA. You played for the Philadelphia Charge for Mark Kerkorian back in 2003. So before before we talk Soccer Without Borders, we got to talk a little bit about, about WSA. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. <laughs> so you were drafted out of Dartmouth in 2003, the, the final year of the league. And talk about just just a, a few memories of playing pro. I mean, I, I would assume when you entered Dartmouth, there wasn't a pro league, so you didn't have <laughs> any aspirations of, oh, I'm going to get to play pro. But talk about that 2003 season. Yeah, so my my first sort of inkling, like you said, it didn't exist when I when I went to Dartmouth, and that's certainly not why I chose it as a, as a school, but we, we did quite well during my years there. We made the sweet 16 twice. And, um, one of my teammates who was two years ahead of me, Kristen Muckenbill had been drafted and and was playing actively with the Carolina courage at the time. And Uh so I had sort of this precedent and, um, I knew there was a possibility. And and when my coach, Erica Walsh, uh, Erica Dombach now, uh, when she approached me about, you know, do you want to enter the draft? Uh, yeah, you know, I've been getting some interest. I, I, it just kind of hadn't been on my radar. But uh, soccer had been a part of my life since I was four. I was, I was saying earlier, I, I think we forget that this relationship with the sport, it, it's the longest relationship I've had in my life other than my parents and my older brother. And so, you know, to to be faced with that choice, that, hey, you can continue to be a part of the sport as a player you know, that's, that's a hard thing to, to say, no, I'm not going to try. So, um, yeah, I went for it and, and ended up in Philly. Um, and I think one of my first memories was actually during preseason. Cause as, as a, as a senior, you're getting drafted, but you, I still was, I wasn't going to not graduate from Dartmouth after right. all the time I had put in. Um, <laughs> 
and, and Dartmouth's on a quarter schedule, which is different. A lot of people took off the whole winter, spring semester, but ours was on a quarter schedule. So the preseason started right towards the end of my winter quarter. And so I just had to get through those finals and then I would get credit for that whole quarter that I had that I had been there for. So I show up the preseason and I'm literally writing my final papers. I was able to take a couple of my finals ahead of time, but the rest <laughs> in between sessions, we, we practiced at Villanova and in between sessions, I was in the, in the library at Villanova writing these papers, but I wasn't alone because there was actually one other rookie that was also a, uh, on a quarter system at university of Washington. And that was hope solo. So in between, and my first memories are going in between double sessions with Hope Solo to the Villanova Library to, to finish <laughs> to up. Get your degrees done. That's awesome. To, to, yeah, to get credit for the classes we had been taking all winter before before heading to preseason. And, of course, we know the, the league didn't last beyond 2003. So you moved into um, – you you went abroad first before you moved into coaching. So talk a little bit about playing in Iceland. Yeah, Iceland uh, was just an amazing international experience for me. I, I think as a college student, I hadn't been able to to go abroad, whereas a lot of my friends had been able to, you know, get that experience living abroad. And so, I, I sort of jumped at the chance to to get to play abroad. I went abroad with my teammate from the Charge, Rachel Cruz, um, and we found a team in the Icelandic Premier League that was actually based not on mainland Iceland, but on an island off the coast of Iceland, which is the most isolated wow. and remote I've ever lived. I mean, it was a, just a tiny island, 4,000 people, and somehow they could sustain a, a, a pro women's soccer team. And that juxtaposition, that was crazy to think about. I just left the United States after all of this momentum post-99 World Cup, and we can't, we couldn't make it work. We couldn't make the funding for this league work. And yet this 4,000 person town in Iceland was making it work. And the whole, <laughs> the whole town came out to, to watch our team play. Um, I, it, it, the, the experience of being it was a minority, really, like I, I was, I was alone. There were two at times, three Americans on the entire Island. Anything I did, they knew I, I would show up to practice and they would say, oh, you went to the library today or, oh, you, I, you went to the bakery. I was like, how do you know this? <laughs> um, but I was just, you know, I was an outsider in a place that was very incredibly welcoming, but also very, um, they'd grown up for generations there, you know. So it was it was a really profound experience of being an outsider and, and seeing and feeling what it's like to be welcomed by, by a community and the way that soccer can do that. So you came back from Iceland and ended up coaching first at, at Lehigh and then at your alma mater back, back at Dartmouth. So talk about coaching and then moving on from coaching to uh, helping found soccer without borders. Yeah. So I uh, give a ton of credit to to Erica Walsh again. She had actually, in uh, in her career, a few people maybe remember this now, but she left Dartmouth as a head coach to become a graduate assistant at Lehigh and pursue her MBA. So she was actually finishing up her MBA when I was in Iceland, and she said, "You know, I I think you you would really enjoy this position, and I think you and the head coach would get along." And so I remember she she 
organized the interview and then I received this like FedEx packet in Iceland with information about what, what it would be. Um, and got the position as a GA at first at Lehigh. Um, they didn't have a full assistant coach at the time. I mean, I think women's soccer division one has really accelerated in terms of the investment over the last 15 years. But at the time, you know, Lehigh was a division one program with, without a full-time assistant coach. Um, so wow. my, my role as a GA, I, I was doing that. And um, I, I think I really just based my experience off of what Erica and our other assistants, Ben Landis, um, how they had made me feel as a player. And so I think as an assistant coach, people sometimes think that the, the kids definitely think that the coaches just sort of sit in their office planning X's and O's and then they show up to practice. But I mean, we, I loved my role as an assistant, getting to work with the players, you have more influence over somebody's transition into adulthood than I think there are few other adults that have a greater influence than a, than a college coach over, over that transition um, and the, the role you can play in people's lives during that time. So I, I really loved my role as an assistant. You get to be a counselor, a friend, a mentor, a, a stand-in parent, a travel planner. And um, I think that, that gave me a, a pretty wide range of ways to test out, hey, what am I good at and what am I interested in? Um, it kind of introduced me to the idea that there's other ways to be involved in this sport that I loved and um, beyond just as a player. So I think that was a really great transition time for me. Uh, I ended up coaching Division One for six years, like you said, four at Lehigh and two at Dartmouth. Um, but right in between those two was when I met the founder of Soccer Without Borders, Ben Gucciardi, uh-huh. and my my very first international uh, experience traveling under the banner of Soccer Without Borders was actually in between Lehigh and Dartmouth was during that transition. Um, I traveled to Nicaragua with uh, a, another former Lehigh player, and our goal was to set up a girls soccer program there that was the sort of relationship that had been formed and the vision for this this town in Nicaragua that was what they needed and what they were asking for Uh, and because of my experience as a player and coach it seemed like a good fit for me apart from the fact that I spoke no Spanish at the time (laughs) which in in retrospect is horribly naive Um, but I, I was able to put put into practice, you know, is, is soccer a universal language? Because there was no other language uh, that I could, that I could speak. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of the, the avenue. And I, I think there were two entry points for me in the transition to Soccer Without Borders. The first was making the choice to go, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to raise money. I'm going to take a couple months off in between you know, finishing my master's degree and finishing up coaching at Lehigh before I know what's next. And I'm just going to go to this place and, and do something different with, with what I know about this sport as a player and a coach. Um, so that was the first choice, but the second choice was really to stay, to stay and try to make a career of it. Um, because at the time it was a, 
it was just Ben and me and a couple other people who were sort of volunteering their time and nights and weekends. Bootstrapping. Bootstrapping. Yeah, total bootstrap. All the donors were, you know, my friends and family. I I remember doing a a clinic at an indoor soccer facility in my hometown and saying, you know, kids that come to the clinic, you, you can donate $10 and, you know, we'll use the money for this Nicaragua program. So it was really just a a passion project at the time. And I I really couldn't have predicted that 12 years later, it would be my full-time job and we would have over 50 staff and we'd be uh, having year-round programs and a $2 million budget. I, it just, I would have had, I would have thought you were crazy if you had said that to me (laughs) uh, in, in 2007 when I was, you know, running that clinic for $10 and, in Western Massachusetts. So, so what's next for Soccer Without Borders? So we have been growing as, as quickly, but also responsibly as we can. I mean, we are focused on using the sport as a vehicle for change in the lives of, of young people, but also in communities. So it's sort of this combination of youth development and social change. Because if you if you reach enough young people in enough communities, you, you start to see that there are structural uh, barriers to that make it so that a girl born in Philly and grew, who grew up in Northampton to, you know, daughter of a professor gets to play professionally in multiple countries and make a career of it. And a girl who's born in Granada, Nicaragua uh, to, um, you know, a family of 13 with that has no access to education, that we have very different lives and that those lives are really determined by where we were born and not by our skills or our hard work or, mm-hmm. you know, many of the things that we think. And that, that was really my aha moment was that first trip to Nicaragua. I met this girl who, she was 15 years old at the time, and we were holding a practice um, for girls at this one field and the field was just dirt and glass. And there was like 15 goats wandering across that you had to like push out of the way to get space. And this girl comes running across the field. She has only flip flops. So she kicks them off and I'm like dreading that she's going to cut her foot open on some glass. So I went into my bag and I gave her my sneakers and I had my cleats on and uh, we just started juggling and I'm, as I got to know this girl over the course of that trip, over the course of my years in Nicaragua, I just kept coming back to like, she could be me just born into a totally different circumstance. She, she hated to defend. She, she loved headers. Um, She just grew up playing with the boys, just truly loved the sport for what it was and would play in any context. And that's exactly how I grew up. And it just really made me realize that my whole path was really in some ways just luck, luck of the draw. And so I felt that as somebody who benefited from title nine, somebody who benefited from the 99ers, somebody who continues to benefit from the work of women who came before that I need to find a way to pay it forward. And, and that's really what soccer without borders has been about for me and it turns out that once you sort of scratch the surface of that, there is so much need. There, there are so many kids that are left out 
of sport, that are left out of education, that are left out of just the chance to reach their potential. And Soccer Without Borders is trying to meet that need. And we are, we could never grow fast enough because the need is just really growing exponentially faster. Um, so that's, that's what's next for us is figuring out what, what more we can do. How do we scale more, more quickly or more thoughtfully that we can actually bring solutions to more communities and more young people that want it um, and, and could benefit from it without, without imploding, like without, without, you know, without, um, you know, in some ways I think the WSA is an interesting case study to say just because there's a need and a, and an interest at a moment in time doesn't mean that you can create something sustainable. And I think we learned that lesson that just because something's right doesn't mean it's going to last. And uh, so, so that's, I, I feel really uh, proud of what we've built. So many people have dedicated their careers and time and money. And um, but it's, I have a responsibility as a leader within that to make sure that we're doing things in a in a way that's sustainable. You know, we're responsible for people's just livelihoods and jobs, and kids and families rely on us. So, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we're growing at a pace that's also responsible. So if if someone wants to get involved, um, either volunteering or donating, you know, how, how would they do that? Uh, so we, the best way is through our website, www.soccerwithoutborders.org. And hopefully if we've done the website well enough, you can navigate to, uh, there's, a, there's a page called Ways to Give. And that talks about everything from donating to starting a fundraiser page, you know, asking people to donate for your birthday on behalf of something that you care about, uh, to volunteering, to traveling with us to one of our international trips. Um, yeah, all different ways to get involved and, and ways to give. And I, I hope that there are, and I know that there are others like me that have that have benefited from other people's breaking barriers. And hopefully some of them will choose to join us in, in breaking the barriers that still exist because there's still a lot more to be done. Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and, you know, good luck with everything you're doing with soccer without borders moving forward. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to, to speak with you and just thanks for what you're doing and in capturing the history of of women's soccer. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Ashley Shim from the Jamaican women's national team, part of the women's world cup team, the first ever from Jamaica, the first ever from a Caribbean nation. Ashley, um, it's been, it has to have been such a crazy 12 months for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, just between, you know, training, personal things, and then uh, dealing with the team and, um, you know, with our friendlies and leading up, leading up to the World Cup, it's definitely been a crazy year. Probably more travel than you had 
in the last 12 months than the rest of your life combined, I would think. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so let's go back to last August. It was the the final round of pre-qualifying for the CONCACAF Women's Championship that was in October. Um, you have been on the Jamaican national team since since 2015. Of course, they haven't you know, been very, very active until last year. So you got your first international goal. You guys clinched a place at the CONCACAF, um, you know, the final round of qualifying. What was the feeling um, within the team going into that final tournament? I think going into the final tournament, um, we all uh, were on the same page. I think we had a really, really tight-knit group. Um, we had a really good bond between between all of us and we had the same vision, the same goals for our team. Um, so I think that going in, we had a, just the mindset that we were just going to do our best. And, you know, I don't think there was really any doubt in anyone's mind that we, it was not possible for us to qualify. I think we really had that belief in each other. And then the tournament, you were in the group with Costa Rica, Canada, and who am I missing? And Cuba, um, Cuba, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, playing all the games in in South Texas, and you know, I, I have to be honest. Before the tournament, I'm sure everyone assumed that it would be uh, U.S. and Mexico out of that group, and Canada mm-hmm. and Costa Rica out yeah. of out of your group. So, you know, what did it feel like to kind of change that script? Um, I mean, to this day, honestly, that that feeling is a little bit indescribable. Um, I think obviously the Costa Rica game was really important for us to, to get that win. Um, and I think there were a lot of different pressures come from coming from different uh, areas, but um, at the end of the day, like it just felt really cool, like really cool to be a part of something that was literally impossible to do um, with almost little to no support from uh our own federation and then uh even fans like we started to see fan support increase throughout the the stages of the qualifying rounds um it just feels really cool to be a part of something like that because it's not like the rio Grande valley you know where where texas and mexico meet is is really a hotbed for jamaican soccer fans uh, no. <laughs> no, not in the least. <laughs> so, you know, getting out of the group, you know, was one huge accomplishment for the team, but then to not only get out of the group, but, you know, so of course you, you know, go to the semifinals playing in Frisco, um, you know, get the honor of, uh, playing against the U S in the semifinals. Yeah. yeah. But, but by getting into the semis, it meant that at least you had a chance in the third place game to qualify yeah. for the World Cup. And that was such an incredible game to watch. I was up there in, in Frisco that it was back and forth. And whichever team won, it was going to be a historic qualification, right? Um, yeah. And it was also a, a little bit colder than I think, you know, either either the Jamaica team or the Panamanian team would have would have been yeah. – I used to play, but talk about that game. Yeah. I mean, just thinking, thinking about it, honestly, my, my heart's still like beating from, from like being on the bench and then coming in the game and trying to, to, you know, 
and get our help our team, you know, get get the win that we needed to get to to qualify. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just crazy. Um, like you said, it was a lot of back and forth. Uh, Panama is a very good team, um, and so that was a really big challenge for us just to to compete against them. Um, but all I can really think about is uh, just the just the the fact that it went down to penalties. Like I knew it wasn't gonna be easy that game, but I mean, it had like it had to go to penalties. That's how that's how uh, tight the the competition was, I guess. Um, well, and, and and Bunny Shaw scoring early, Panama equalizing, yeah. so it goes to extra time. Jody yeah. Brown scoring pretty early next time, but then Panama equalizing pretty late. So going to penalties, and at this point, you were on the field. And you were one of the penalty kick takers. So, you know, talk, talk about walking up to the spot to, to take that kick. Uh, honestly, Jen, I, I blacked out. <laughs> I blacked out. I was like, I was like, I told myself, I was like, you don't even have time to think about like, what if, or any scenario, like you literally, I just blacked everything out of my mind. I just walked up and then I just, did what I had to do. Um, and I think that was probably the same thing for, for, every, for everyone uh, going up to take a, a PK. And then, you know, with winning on PKs and watching that celebration, it was, you know, exciting for even those of us in, in, the, in the fans that had no, you know, stake in, in Jamaica qualifying. But it's, you know, it's always thrilling to see a team qualified that, you know, has never qualified before. And then it seemed like following that, there was just such like wave after wave of more support. And uh, I I loved seeing how many friendlies were scheduled, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so the team could get better. Seeing a, a pretty large camp that January to pull in any possible potential player for the team. So tell me what spring 2019 was like, especially when, you know, with, with the coach calling in a big camp like that, I would think a lot of you are thinking, well, there's no guarantee that I get to go to France, even though I helped qualify. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think there's quite a bit to say about that actually. Um, uh, Like you said, the, we had a lot of friendlies, um, which was really important for us to get prepared uh, to then go into the World Cup because we've never, I don't think we've really ever played teams outside of our own region. Right. Um, and to be able to play South Africa and then play teams like Scotland, um, I think that was that was a big thing for us um, to do. Um, and then with camps, uh, I actually was... Uh, I was injured until like April. So I, I missed a couple camps before then. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that, yeah, there was, they, they had called, the coaches had called a, a pretty big number. Um, and I think just the support each camp, as each camp went on, I think the support from um, local communities in Jamaica and then the uh, corporate side of Jamaica uh, became um, a lot more prominent. So that was, that was really encouraging to see because I remember the very first um, qualifying rounds in May, May, 2018, it was almost like no one, no one knew that we existed. Like right. no one knew anything about us, but then to now have just like uh, an outpour of just total love and support and encouragement from um, not just Jamaicans, but 
you know, people around the world started to take notice. I think that was really um, important for us to, to feel as players. Well, and like I said, that, that support around the world, that's the, the wonderful thing that social media can do, you know, is just the story starts traveling. And, and also, I, I love that the, the game, some of the games you guys were playing were streamlined and then archived online. So it's just like more opportunity for engagement that, you know, just a decade ago, a decade ago would not have been possible. Yeah, so, exactly. So talk about um, finding out that you made the final 23-player roster going going to France. Um, I mean, I was filled with a lot of emotion. I was obviously really excited, um, really grateful. But I, I felt that I, um, you know, along with everyone else who, who made it and who weren't able to go to France, I think we all gave everything we could to the team. Um, so it just feels good to know that everything that you put in um, benefited the, the, the team and then being able to go to France was just like an added bonus. And, and then talk about th- that time in France. I mean, obviously it wasn't as, as long as you guys would have wanted it to be, but you know, I, I, I've got to think that the team came away somewhat satisfied as, you know, we, we, we scored a goal. We were, you know, yeah. in game and you guys were in one of the hardest groups. Yeah, um, definitely. I think Australia, correct me if I'm wrong, they were number six at the time. And I think Italy was like 15. Um, Sounds right. It could be wrong. But, but yeah, we, we, I mean, to have a, a group of players um, who are the youngest, um, most inexperienced players play against some of the best teams and, and the best quality players in the world, um, that's not like it's not an easy an easy thing uh, to do. So I think in in all of the games we kind of had to figure out. Okay, this is we're 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 doing this style of play where we have this formation. We're we're doing X, Y, and Z, but it's not working. So how do we change it? And how do we how do we do it quickly? And how do we move on with the game? Um, I think that was probably one of the challenging most challenging parts for us uh, in terms of actually playing. Um, but to know that like when, when we qualified in October for us, that was already a win. That was pr- the biggest thing that we could have ever done. And, and even to get out of the group stage, if that was uh, possible for us um, would have been uh, really great, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything we were like expecting. And I don't want that to sound like, Oh, we went in and we didn't try or we weren't thinking that we weren't going right. to go through, but, but to just to be the first, a uh, women's Caribbean team to make it to a World Cup literally with no help at all from from our federation. Like that's that's like a huge statement. Um, and the last team to do it was uh, our men's team 20 years ago. So uh, for us, we've we've already accomplished so many things, and this is just a stepping stone for uh, football in Jamaica to grow even more in the future. Yeah. And, you know, it, it has to be said again, this cycle, similar to the last qualifying cycle, it was really the support of Sedella Marley and, and the yeah. Bob Marley Foundation that made it possible for you guys to do as much as you were able to do. Yeah, without them, um, honestly, I, I don't think that we could have. I don't think we could have qualified because we needed uh, we needed 
the, the funds to be able to have camps, to be able to meet with each other and travel and train and, and get these friendlies. And um, since day one, Sadella has been a, a part of this, this program and she's given so much uh, just of her time and of her, her own self uh, to us, which is, I mean, I don't think we, I, we're just so grateful. I don't think we could, there's, we could ever pay her for what she's done for us. Um, and then also there's another uh, sponsor that had been, uh, that had come a little bit later, the Alacran group, um, them and Sadella work closely together to be able to, to have us have these camps and, and be able to, to travel and, and get the necessary things we need to be prepared when we um, were going into the qualifying stages and then into the world cup. So, so where is the team now? Because I, I know we've got preliminary Olympic qualifying coming up for both Caribbean and, and obviously Central America that will then lead to the final CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament in January, uh-huh. February. So, so where is the Jamaican national team right now? You know, that's a, that's a question that, yeah, that I'm asking myself, to be honest with you. Um, so we, we recently, uh, I guess you could call it a strike. We went on strike. Um, the, the players who went to the World Cup um, that have contracts with the JFF um, because we haven't been, we haven't been paid uh, for our duties with the national team. And our contract is is up, and we're still waiting for for the for the money. Um, so right now our team is I don't know if there's there's really there's not much to say about it because this is the current situation we're in. Um, we've agreed to with each other, and we've gone public with it that we're not playing until um, until our contract is 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 fulfilled. So this is kind of the, the tough part because we obviously, we, we want to have a good relationship with our Federation. We want to uh, be on good terms. We want peace. Um, but it's been a, an internal battle for a long time and um, nothing has changed and we're afraid that nothing will change. So we decided as a group to just kind of step out and, and make a statement um that we can't be we can't keep working we can't keep playing we can't keep putting ourselves on the line for uh, a, f- a federation that doesn't doesn't support us um so that's that's the tough part and and you know we we want everything to be solved before the the olympic qualifying at the end of the month um because for, for and I think I could speak almost for every player. Like it, it just means a lot to wear, you know, to wear that jersey to to represent your country to to sing the national anthem. Um, it's kind of like a a national pride thing. So we we want to do well for Jamaica. We want to uh, progress. We want to move forward from this. So we're hoping that we can um, come to terms and and get things back to normal. Well, and it's pretty clear what all of you are potentially giving up, um, especially when, you know, qualifying for the women's world cup, you know, having a respectable performance and the Olympics just being a year later means that, you know, here's this great, uh, platform that you guys can keep building on. You know, it's, it's not having to start from scratch again to try to qualify 
for the Olympics. And so, you know, kind of the good thing here is that you have something concrete to say, hey, you know, we need to be paid if we're going to be, you know, if we're going to continue playing, no one should be expected to keep doing that work or work of any kind without, you know, mm-hmm. being paid. And it, it, it does, you know, suck to get to that point where, okay, now we have to make, you know, this private matter public. Uh, Cause you know, it, it seems pretty clear. I mean, when I first started to notice it on Instagram, maybe, you know, a, a week ago, maybe it's, it's, it's like, it wasn't a splash. It was just like a little ripple that kept growing, but you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you guys have to say, it's like, can, yeah. How long are you expected to keep playing without, you know, compensation? And, and it's not like, you know, you don't have to reveal any numbers, but it's not like you guys are talking about a million dollar payday. It's just, you know, if you're playing with the, the team and not getting paid, that means not only are you not getting paid, but that you're giving up opportunities to, you know, be paid for a job elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's uh, and it's definitely not it's definitely not a million dollars. This is uh, <laughs> the early stages of women's football. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and and just to be clear, I and I think for everyone on the team, it's it was never about the money in the first place because if we were playing for money, then we wouldn't be playing soccer because there's no money in women's soccer just yet. Um, right. It's more about just the, the, the respect part of it. It's like, and, and this isn't just, you know, a woman's soccer problem in Jamaica. It's a, it's a men's soccer problem. It's a youth soccer problem. It's, it's, it's everything. Um, so the, the money isn't really there in Jamaica. We, we play for a lot more and a lot deeper things than, than just the money. But it's the fact that, Hey, how, like you said, like how long can I be, you know, sacrificing everything um, and being promised things that I'm just, you know, that we're just not getting. Right. And we've seen this in CONCACAF before in, in other nations. I mean, I, I think back to Trinidad and Tobago, uh, you know, making the 2006 world cup. And uh, it took, I think it took them three years to get their, you know, the money that FIFA paid the TNT Federation for the team qualifying that it's like, it took, took so long for the players, you know, to, to see that. And it's just like, even when there's not a lot of cash flow in the Mm -hmm. story, I mean, what, what I saw last spring was a lot of sponsors stepping up. So it's like, and Hey, if you've been promised something, well then it should be delivered because clearly, you know, you guys um, delivered on, on, on your promise. So, you know, really hoping you guys can resolve this because, you know, it just wouldn't be Olympic qualifying without the reggae girls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Ashley, thanks so much for uh, taking the time uh, to talk about uh, your past 12 months and where the team is right now. And like I said, I hope you guys get everything settled. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. 
NWSL action resumes this Friday after the FIFA break, and you will hear my voice on all four of the games this weekend. So hope you enjoy my voice. And a reminder that ESPN now has the worldwide rights to NWSL streams. So if you are an international fan, that means for the rest of the season, you either need to have access to your regional ESPN channel or TSN in Canada, or get a VPN so that your computer thinks you're streaming from the U.S. Yahoo remains the provider for USA streams, so no login is necessary. But more importantly, if you're not going to watch games live, 48 hours after kickoff, every single NWSL game reverts to NWSLsoccer.com, and you can watch from anywhere in the world on that website with no login. I hope that all makes sense. Anyway, moving on. We are barely six weeks away from the NWSL championship game. Tickets are on sale now at nwslsoccer.com slash championship. The game will be played Sunday, October 27th in Cary, North Carolina. And as of this week, you know, we still, well, we haven't had any action last week, so we, we still have no one eliminated from playoff contention. Still too early to know for sure who's going to host the semifinals that will be played on Sunday, October 20th. Uh, but I think in the next few weeks, a lot of things will start sorting themselves out. So just keep keep an eye on the standings. And, of course, in our recent FIFA window, the U.S. women beat Portugal in two different friendlies. And next month, they will wrap up their victory tour with two games against South Korea. They'll play in Charlotte, North Carolina on October 3rd, and then at Soldier Field in Chicago on October 6th. Those two games will be the final games for head coach Jill Ellis, and after that, there will be a new head coach for the U.S. Women's National Team. Final note, uh, if you haven't checked it out, uh, you should take a sneak peek at my Keeper Notes almanac. If you go to keepernotes.com and click on Publications, you can see a brief PDF sneak preview. You can buy a print version, the complete PDF, or a combo package. Uh, It has all the info for the first six seasons of NWSL, and the next edition of my almanac will likely be available right before Christmas. Also, there's a lot of other fun nerd links, Woso nerd links as we call them, on keepernotes.com, so check it out. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who tweets about it. And many thanks to Sean for putting it all together. But now she's anybody's girl.